Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History of England, episode 290, The Religious Settlement. It has also, by the way, come to my attention that there are listeners here who belong to the Church of Wittertainment. So, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, can I just recognise that there is now a chapter of said church for the History of England listeners by simply saying hello to Jason Isaacs and a Fairport Convention. All this talk of churches is of course most appropriate, given that we're about to talk about the Elizabethan religious settlement. Now, Every famous person has quotes wrongly applied to them. One of these in Elizabeth's world is the much-used I will not make windows into men's souls. Of course, Elizabeth did not say this. It was Francis Bacon, famous son of Nicholas Bacon, Elizabeth's Lord Keeper, who said it of her religious policy. And it is a phrase which has been furiously kicked against. One comment I saw recently said caustically that she made windows into men's entrails instead. So, was Elizabeth really anxious to bring religious peace to her people? Or was this just the latest swing of the pendulum from persecution of Protestants to persecution of Catholics? There has been plenty of speculation about Elizabeth's own religious beliefs. It has been noted that she had largely conformed during Mary's reign with a bit of kicking and screaming, huffing and on occasion puffing. After she came to the throne, she continued to celebrate the Mass in her chapel. 
though she withdrew at a specific point in the service, to avoid the seeing of the elevation of the host, a moment of particular disgust for Protestants. It seemed clear that she liked a bit of ceremonial. She was keen to decorate the altar in with grand candlesticks. She liked complex church music, patronising and protecting Catholic composer Thomas Tallis and William Byrd, who actually became a Catholic in the 1570s. She was later to show a reluctance to agree to clerical marriage, one of the great steps forward as far as Protestants were concerned. Now, in the 1950s, the historian J.E. Neal also made the case that Elizabeth never planned for the religious settlement that actually occurred. She aimed to return to the situation that existed at the end of her father's reign, a relatively lightly modified religion without purgatory and the removal of the Pope. And then what happened was that she was pushed into a Protestant settlement by returning fervent Marian exiles in Parliament. And in 1558, while some of the Marian exiles were confident that Elizabeth would be a Protestant champion and packed their bags and came home, others were much more cautious and stayed put in places like Geneva and Strasbourg to wait and see what unfolded. And between November 1558 and her first Parliament in February 1559, Elizabeth kept her cards very close to her chest. Enthusiasts on both sides were required to obey the law, and the law, as established by Mary, was Catholic practice. It may also have sneaked out that Elizabeth deeply resented Knox's blasts against monstrous women and wasn't keen on Calvin either. So when Jean Calvin sent Elizabeth a copy of his latest publication, she showed little interest in it. The attitude of both men to women was one important factor in this, but the other, just as important, was the attitude of Calvinists to royal authority. On many occasions over the next 45 years, Elizabeth will prioritise dynastic concerns over matters of religion. And Elizabeth seriously doubted the commitment of Calvinists to royal authority. Indeed, a doctrine of rebellion against Catholic rulers was seen as justified by the Calvinists. Elizabeth was her father's daughter and firmly believed that the only possible response to a royal command was, yes sir, three bags full sir. Jean also sent a note to Cecil at the same time, by the way, saying, If hitherto you have been timid, you may now make up for your deficiency by the ardour of your zeal. This is a snide reference by Calvin to Cecil's failure to declare himself publicly as a Protestant and jump onto one of Poole and Mary's bonfires in Smithfield. The appropriate response, I would have thought, where I, William Cecil, would have involved four letters and two fingers, but these are different times, and Calvin was maybe expressing the concern of many Protestants. What was going to happen now? Well, Cecil had not been idle, as it happens. His aim was to bring a coherent strategy to the Queen, and his style was to consult and investigate before he did so. So he commissioned a paper from a colleague who worried about the dangers and complications and legal stuff. Return to the situation at the end of Henry VIII's reign, he advised. Be cautious. Anything else is too difficult, too dangerous. There is no doubt that Cecil's Protestantism was much more radical than his mistress's wherever on the spectrum you place Elizabeth. For Cecil, true religion was that as achieved by the Edwardian church. So this advice 
was way too cautious for him. Another paper was then produced, very probably by Cecil himself. It's called The Device for the Alteration of Religion. It is a useful paper to start from, not only because it may well be the key to Elizabeth's real intentions when Parliament was finally convened, but because it puts religion in the wider context. Because the religious settlement, while primarily in a sense about conscience and belief, was also about politics and diplomacy. There are a few things of which we should remind ourselves to start with. First of all, England was still at war with France, and Elizabeth made it pretty clear that she wanted Calais back, or she did initially at least. By 1559, negotiations for peace had started, and Elizabeth helpfully set clear parameters for her delegates, by telling them they could on the one hand conclude a treaty which saw Calais return to England, or on the other hand they could have their heads removed. It's always handy to know where you stand. The other thing to remember is that Catholic might have been the rightful monarch as far as the English were concerned, but she was not as far as the Catholic Church was concerned, because Elizabeth was the daughter of the Great Hall, Anne Boleyn. So when Mary died childless, the next in line was the descendant of Henry VIII's elder sister, Margaret Tudor, who had married James IV of Scotland, and whose granddaughter was Mary, whose surname, of course, is Queen of Scots. Mary was around 16 in 1559 and married to Francis, the Dauphin of France. Lest you think this is a small thing, two more items should be of interest to you. In 1558, Mary signed a clause which ran counter to the original marriage agreement. That original agreement had been that Scotland and France would remain separate and if there were no children from the marriage, then they'd go their separate ways. But Mary now compliantly agreed a new agreement, giving over her inheritance to her husband, whatever happened. It's a really rather remarkable thing, an agreement that Scotland should become part of France. The second thing to note is that this is not the matter of delicate diplomacy, of the odd suggestion or veiled threat in meetings between French and English diplomats in wood-panelled rooms. The young couple publicly quartered the English royal arms with those of France, which is the diplomatic equivalent of a taser attack. So, the device for the alteration of religion presented the case and associated scenarios for a return to Protestantism in England, and it held nothing back. Cecil was clear about what could be expected from the Pope, which would be uncompromising. Cecil predicted excommunication, interdict, and that the Pope would make England pray to all princes that will enter upon it. There wasn't much to be done about that, the paper figured. Spain was still England's ally, but with negotiations happening now, that would be unlikely to continue. And it was France that Cecil focused on. In his view, Henry II would fight England both as heretics and as natural enemies, and it would use Scotland to do so. And meanwhile, Ireland would also be difficult to control, by reason of the clergy, which is so addicted to Rome. So it's all quite scary then for England, with lots of threats. But there was more baggy, much more, because internally also a Protestant settlement would face opposition, he wrote. The Marian bishops and clergy, he believed, would fight tooth and nail. But then on the other side, there would be the more zealous Protestants, fired up from their experiences in cities like Strasbourg and Geneva, keen to see the Edwardian Reformation reinstated and then enhanced further to make England 
just like Geneva. In fact, one of Cecil's friends was the Countess of Suffolk, Catherine Willoughby, who now returned from the rather grand form of exile she'd enjoyed and wrote to Cecil, telling him to get on with it. Cecil's mitigation, then, was peace with France as soon as possible, whatever the cost, but it was quickly clear that the cost would be Calais. Nothing good would come from the Pope, but in Scotland there was hope, because in Scotland there was a movement which was already struggling for the return of what Cecil defined as good religion. What Cecil envisaged was an alliance with those Protestants, to augment the hope of those who inclined to good religion. Now, Cecil had served with his then master Somerset during the war in Scotland in the 1540s. He had seen the good and the bad of that. The offer of a pan-British Protestant alliance had been an exciting concept. It had been an exciting concept, arousing some contempt from the Scots when offered at the end of a gun. Here was a lesson Cecil had learned then, at one level that intervention in Scotland may be practised to help forward their divisions and keep England secure from French-inspired invasion. But to keep England secure forever, a pan-British Protestant alliance was the thing. But to succeed, he could not again be at the end of a gun. If England intervened in Scotland, it must then leave as soon as possible. OK, so it strikes me this isn't really helping you very much as far as the process of the Elizabethan religious settlement is concerned, but, you know, the context is important. And in terms of Elizabeth's personal religion, well, after being given a doom-laden prediction of the international threats like that, would you have gone ahead unless you had a personal commitment to it? There's no doubt that Elizabeth liked some ceremony in her religion, and as we'll see, she was not one for zealotry but she was a fair Dinkum Protestant without much doubt. Her beliefs focused on justification by faith alone, but with suspicion of the Calvinistic extreme of predestination. Her preference for a set of readings over preaching, her providential right to rule and the obligation of her subjects to reverence. For her, uniformity with the removal of division was essential, including conformity to the Book of Common Prayer. We are now in a situation, of course, where, due to the actions of Henry and Mary, Parliament had been made the route to legitimise religious change. And it is to Elizabeth's first Parliament, therefore, that we should go. While all the prep was going on for the Parliament, a small group was set up to work to develop a plan for the new Church of England to be put to the Queen before being used to create legislation for said Parliament which was then opened by Mr Bacon on the 25th of January, 1559. Meanwhile, Cecil had speaker's slots at St Paul's Cross booked out for Protestant preachers. He couldn't hinder, surely, to get folks in the mood. Although some of the preachers reflected Protestant concerns that everything was going far too slowly. Let's get on with it. More, quicker, higher. Il Chiffonoyer, the ambassador, was there and figured there were 5,000 people with those preachers. But for a good Catholic, it did not make happy listening, with so much evil of the Pope, of the bishops, of the prelates, of the regulars, of the church, of the mass, and finally of our entire faith. 
Now, it was traditional that at the same time as Parliament met, the Convocation of the Church of England would also meet, and so they did. This was not to prove helpful to Elizabeth's plans. Anyway, Elizabeth came down to Parliament and sat in majesty while Bacon told them all what was required of them all. His instructions may well have come from Elizabeth herself, because alongside the main task, the well-making of laws for the according and uniting of the people of the realm into a uniform order of religion, there was also a demand for moderation, to not get hung up on the finer details of theology. To settle doubt, Elizabeth had the brain for academic stuff, but equally clear, she was reasonably weary of anyone who went overboard. She told them to make sure they didn't chuck words around like heretic, or schismatic, or papist. It is impossible to avoid two allusions here, to her dad and his mumpsimus and sumptimus speech for one, and to, well, the vitriol of the Brexit language as a more modern one. There, I have mentioned Brexit in one of my podcasts. Are you not impressed? I've resisted this long. Go me. I'm too sexy for my shirt and all that. On the 21st of February then, after making sure Parliament had granted a subsidy, a Bill of Supremacy and Uniformity was introduced to the Commons, combining both matters of theology and the royal supremacy. William Cecil himself sat as a Member of Parliament, and you have to imagine he was a constant presence. As far as we can know, there were no great problems in the House of Commons, though there were objections. One John Story seems to have missed the memo about keeping it real, when he reportedly said it was a pity Elizabeth had not been executed, as he had recommended to Queen Mary, which even in the Brexit debate would probably raise an eyebrow or two. Now look, you can stop me now. I promise I'll do no more on Brexit. Anyway, story seems to be an exception, and through its three readings and committee stage in the House of Commons, it went through happily. Smashing. Super great. They think it's all over. However, in convocation, things were a-cooking. It's reasonably clear that the bishops and their clergy were determined that this would not be a rerun of 1534. So, Convocation drew up some articles from which they would not budge their core beliefs, which included the papal supremacy, the real presence of Christ's natural body in the Eucharist, transubstantiation and the Mass as a sacrificial offering. Oh dear. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The maths in the Lord, which is where the bishops all sat and where the bill now went, looked like this. It's very small, by the way, or it is in terms of the number of people. There were 27 English and Welsh dioceses. Of these, seven were vacant, 
and three bishops died after Elizabeth's succession. The final vote, when we come to it, will total 39. So, a further 22 secular lords also voted. Some, like Arundel and Derby, just found themselves something else to do while Parliament was going on, so that they didn't fall foul of Queen or Pope. The Catholic lords were prepared, and this time, also of course, they were dealing with a new monarch rather than Henry in his intimidating prime, and also a woman monarch, so ha! Should be a cakewalk. First of all, they played for time and delayed the debate as long as possible. When finally they could avoid it no longer, the Catholic members went on the attack. Lord Montague reminded Elizabeth that she had asked for real counsel, so you know, here comes real counsel. And that real counsel was that the bill would repeal all that was ever made for the defence of the faith against the malignity of wicked heresies. At this point, presumably, he was referring to the fact that the heresy laws would also be repealed. So, shock horror, no burning. Archbishop of York Heath was even more blunt and even more personal, attacking the royal supremacy. To preach or minister the holy sacraments a woman may not, neither may she be supreme head of the Church of Christ. It is interesting that Catholic thinking had shifted. Once upon a time, leaders as Augustus Gardiner had accepted the idea of throwing the Pope out of the boat. But in the following theological arguments of Henry and Edward's reigns, they had found that Catholicism without the Pope just made no sense. And so not even the royal supremacy could be accepted this time round. Despite all the arguments of the Protestant lords, the House of Lords eviscerated the act, amending it out of all recognition, with the odd concession, so the Mass could be offered in two kinds, for example. There was high-fiving going on, because this took some cojones, and also the Catholics were confident they'd played a blinder here. They were nearly at Easter, the eviscerated bill was sent back to the Commons on the 18th of March, the Queen was expected to come to Parliament to give assent to all the bills on the 24th of March, and then Parliament would be dissolved. So, no time to rescue that horrid original bill. And Cecil and Elizabeth initially seemed to have accepted defeat. A proclamation was prepared to reassure Protestants that they could celebrate communion, which assumed that Parliament would therefore be dissolved. And of course, since the heresy laws would now still be in place, People needed to know they would not be prosecuted for heresy if they took communion in two kinds. Count Ferrer was over the moon, Jim. The heretics are very downcast over the last few days. A Protestant bishop in waiting lamented that the bishops were as sole monarchs in the midst of ignorant and weak men and easily overreached our little party either by their numbers or by their reputation for learning. But wait, what's this? The proclamation was pulled at the last moment, and on the 24th of March, there was no monarch in Parliament, simply an instruction to prorogue Parliament until the 3rd of April. Elizabeth had decided there would be no easy surrender. On Easter Sunday, Elizabeth let the world know that this was personal. Instead of the Latin Mass... She used the English communion on a simple wooden communion table rather than a grand altar. 
Instead of the chalice being reserved for the priest, the laity were given communion in both kinds, including Elizabeth. If any further evidence is needed of Elizabeth's personal religion, here it was. There's another indication as it happens. Philip II had very graciously offered to marry Elizabeth and Elizabeth had delayed and delayed and Ferrer had complained that he'd been received as though he came with bulls from dead popes, which I assume is not an exciting thing to bring with you. Elizabeth gave him another interview in March and I am ashamed to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that she played with him. Ferrer wrote with outrage that she kept repeating to me that she was heretical and so consequently could not marry your majesty. As you can imagine, declaring yourself a heretic was not the normal route, but presumably, since she was set on a path to eternal damnation anyway, Elizabeth felt yelling Jehovah a few times could hardly do her any more harm. So, how to get things back on track? Well, the way to get things back on track cannot, it must be said, be described as either reputable or honourable. The route suggested was a good old traditional debate between the Catholic bishops and Protestant divines presided over by Nicholas Bacon. It was, of course, a trap. John White, Bishop of Winchester, freed from house arrest, read out the Catholic prepared statement on the first topic and received in return a whopping reply from the Protestant side. When White rose to answer... Bacon said, no, 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 that's sorted. Move on now, move on. He who speaks last, of course, speaks loudest. So next time round, the bishops point blank refused to read out their statements as ordered. And two of them, John White and the Bishop of Lincoln, were carted off to jail for refusing their Queen's command. And it all broke up. The numbers then were subtly changed because two bishops were now in the cooler, not in the Chamber of Parliament. Would it be enough, was the question. Revised bills were now introduced into Parliament, split into two, with an act of supremacy separate from an act of uniformity. The supremacy bill had a small but significant change therein. No longer supreme head, Elizabeth would be supreme governor, with the implied promise that she would not mess with doctrinal matters. That would be for the church to mess with. This was a concession as much to the more extreme Protestants who were extremely unhappy about the idea of a female head of the church. It's unlikely it would have been enough to satisfy any of the Catholic side. For them, however, a number of concessions were made in the form of the 1552 prayer book. Small, but significant. And I'll give you a flavour of those in a moment. Once again, the bills moved easily through the Commons and once again in the Lords, the debate was fierce. The fight in Parliament was reflected in the fight in the streets of London, as it happens. The Privy Council was formed, forced to launch an investigation into the pulling down of images and the sacrament and defacing the vestments and books, while a diarist noted processions that went with their banners abroad in their parish, singing in Latin, Chieri eleison, after the old fashion. It was, in the technical term of the time, something of a bun fight. Once more the bishops argued hard and passionately. Bishop Scott lamented the religion by which our fathers were born, brought up and lived in, and have professed here in this realm without any alteration and change by the space of ten hundred years and more. Abbot Feckenham of Westminster thundered against the society turned upside down. 
the subject disobedient unto God and all superior powers, which rather echoes Gardner's displeasure at what he had seen as the empowerment of Bible reading to encourage the great unwashed to get above themselves. Finally, it came to the division. Two bishops were still absent at Her Majesty's pleasure, and for some reason, Feckenham decided not to turn up, which is odd. The 15 remaining bishops all took the no lobby, and three secular lords joined them. Against them, 21 secular lords voted yes. Both acts had been passed by the narrowest of margins of three. Elizabeth had won. Now, you might imagine that the Protestants would have been cock a hoop. And yet, curiously enough, they were not. One wrote despairingly, Those very things which you and I have often laughed at are now seriously and solemnly entertained. So what had happened? What was the Elizabethan settlement? Well, in many ways, it was very traditional, in the sense that the search for uniformity of religion was very much at the heart of the settlement. Everyone now had to go to church, and if you didn't, there would be fines to pay. No burning, but fines. Nowhere in Europe was the idea of toleration happily accepted. The Netherlands, after 1576, is one exception. Bohemia had a period of toleration until the defeat of the Protestants at White Mountain in 1620, and France had about 80 years of toleration from the Edict of Nantes from the end of the 16th century until Louis XIV rubbed that out. In England, legal toleration would only come in 1688, and when it did, was seen as a sign of abject failure, not celebrated as a fine progression to the sunlit uplands of toleration, and anyway, the test acts made it far from complete. Uniformity of worship was seen as the natural state of affairs, so the religious settlement of 1559 was therefore simply another swing of the pen pendulum back to forcing everyone into the same pint pot then. And yes, that's true in terms of the search for uniformity, but it was an also an attempt in its own way to achieve a kind of toleration. We might define compromise for the moment as something that satisfies nobody, but which everybody could live with. And maybe it's a bit like the BBC. As long as everyone from the left is telling them that they're horrendously biased and right-wing, and the right-wingers write furious letters about trendy lefty Londoners dominating BBC output, well, they know they're pretty much getting it right. The same applies to the religious settlement. It was categorically not Catholicism, and only two of Mary's bishops would accept it, and they were both of the type of bishop who rarely allowed the role to get in the way of their lifestyle choices, so maybe they don't really count either. Nor, though, was it the settlement that the returning Marian exiles expected, as we've seen. Together, this was a settlement that in a few years' time, in 1563, a group of Elizabeth's own bishops, replacing Mary's bishops, were to try and fail to amend in a push towards greater Protestantism. As far as Elizabeth was concerned, this was it. No more messing about. But it took some time for the penny to drop with the more extreme Protestants. Without wanting to bore you with the detail, let me bore you with a bit of detail. For the Protestant, there's no denying that there was a lot of progress in the settlement from Mary's time. Theologically, this is now a Protestant church. No real presence, no transubstantiation. Visually, no images, relics, pilgrimage, candles, rosary. 
basically 39 of Cranmer's 42 articles would be accepted in 1563 as the new Church of England tried to make sense of it all. But there were also quite a few alterations which would have had Calvin and Knox losing their supper. You might remember that in 1549, Cranmer produced his first Book of Common Prayer, which Gardiner gleefully claimed a true Catholic could interpret in a way as to celebrate Mass. In 1559, the revised Book of Common Prayer was actually based on the 1552 version, but with some modifications that reach back to the 1549 version. So, the critical passage in communion added the phrase, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, was added to the 1552 text, Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, etc. You can probably see that this slightly fudges the idea of the real presence. If looked at from an angle with one eye closed in a dim light, it could just suggest it. No, it's not the real presence. The curate was still told to take any overs of the bread and wine home and eat them, suggesting no real transformation had occurred. But the communicant saying the words, well... And traditional wafers were used in the ceremony rather than all the ordinary bread specified in the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. And then quite a few of the outward forms had crept back in. Everyone kneeled for prayers to bow and doff their hats at the name of Jesus. Although the church was organised around the pulpit and a low communion table was used, they were to stand altarwise at the east end of the church. Ministers would wear copes during communion, which was anathema to the Protestants. For its time, there is something therefore very humane about the Elizabethan settlement, maybe to do with Elizabeth herself, maybe because it feels more like a settlement of maturity, something to last and bring together, than a settlement of protest, of reaction against what some might have seen at the time as ancient iniquities to be righted. So, the line in the 1552 prayer book about the detestable tyranny of Rome and all that was taken out, because no one with a love of the traditional religion, even if very willing to comply with royal orders, could read that without being angered. Now also was included the instruction that the clergy should combat the vice damnable despair. Damnable despair was the feeling that, look, I'm doomed. The conviction that I am irretrievably damned much a feature of the extreme forms of Catholicism and Protestantism. Ministers were to point out to their parishioners such comfortable places and sentences of Scripture as so set forth the mercy, benefits and goodness of the Almighty God towards all penitent and believing persons. This is a very humane instruction, and there are other ways in which the settlement sought to create unity. Eamon Duffy, in Voices of Morbath, his famous study of the impact of the Reformation on a parish, reflected that, in her reign, some of the deep rhythms of pre-Reformation religion, outlawed or suspect under Edward, were allowed to reassert themselves. Women were churched, parish ales were drunk, rogan-tied processions visited the old boundaries. Elizabeth's settlement was therefore a humane and genuine attempt to find a middle way which would bring her people together as they had once been. To argue that it was itself an act of toleration rather than of compromise, I realise, is pushing it a bit. 
but I think there is an argument that this is what was attempted when you consider the way in which it was then implemented. The Marian heresy laws were swept away, to the despair of the Marian bishops who lamented that there was no way of enforcing proper religion anymore. Bacon's famous phrase about windows and souls was in fact quite accurate. In all that Elizabeth asked for was for outward conformity, going to church. What you did in the privacy of your own home was up to you. You might be referred to by the locals as a church papist, but that would be that. If you could not live even with going to church, you would be identified as a recusant, and the authorities might well come after you. They would, however, come after you to fine you, not to burn you. In the first ten years of Elizabeth's reign, nobody was executed for religion. And until the Catholic Church decided to make, make it war from the 1570s, it is entirely possible that this is the way things would have stayed. That it did not, that as a result of events later in the reign, Catholicism came to be associated in the minds of English people with foreign tyranny and with treason, is one of the great tragedies of English history. But for the moment, let us leave the settlement for a peace of a kind. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not peaceful, the first reaction of the disappointed radical Protestants and even bishops of the church was to rage against the moderation of the settlement and try to see it as a first step. But one of the ironies of the study of Elizabethan religion is that it's the extremists and fanatics that get study because they leave a record. The fanatic Catholic priests like Campion and Preston who flood into England later in the century to revive their religion and support the recusant community and the fanatical Puritans who raged against the survival of what they saw as Catholic practice. What is far less well covered is the response of the vast majority of ordinary parishioners who by and large just got on with it, however much they did or did not like the changes. OK, that's that for the moment. Next time, in two weeks, I'm going to do a bit of a scene setter. What was the world of the court and central Elizabethan administration like so that you can visualise the environment, conditions under which the event that followed take place? I hope that is acceptable in thy sight. I wish thee good luck and see you in two weeks' time.